Every month, we offer exciting new webinars for our community. Topics include how to use retirement accounts to buy real estate overseas, how to get a second passport in Latin America, why you should sell your stock portfolio and move your money offshore, how to buy beachfront rental properties in Brazil for less than $100,000, or apartments in Paraguay for less than $60,000. If you want to join us for free for these presentations with live Q&A, insider secrets, and exclusive opportunities with my professional network of experts, then go to expatmoney.com forward slash webinars. That's expatmoney.com forward slash webinars to register for free upcoming presentations. expatmoney.com forward slash webinars. We all dream of seeing the world, but the realities of living somewhere outside your place of birth can be daunting to say the least. Welcome to the Expat Money Show, helping you make the most out of your overseas career through conversations with successful expats on investing, entrepreneurship, self-improvement, and continual education, all while sharpening your financial acumen. Now, please welcome your host with over 20 years of overseas experience, Mikkel Thorup. Welcome, welcome, welcome. My name is Mikkel Thorpe, and this is the Expat Money Show. Today's guest is an American writer, publisher, and filmmaker. He currently hosts the Wigan Sessions, a YouTube show covering the financial markets, the economy, and politics. He writes the Financial Daily, the Daily Missive, and host and editor of The Essential Investor, a fundamental resource for individuals managing their money. Please welcome to the show, Addison Wigan. Addison, how are you? I'm doing great. Thanks, Mikkel. Thanks for having me on. Pleasure is all mine. Why don't we take a minute and kind of go through your backstory? We were chit-chatting about your books and your work. How did you decide that this is what you wanted to do with your career? Yeah, interestingly enough, I have my education was in philosophy. I have actually in English literature. I have an undergraduate degree in American short fiction (laughs) and then a philosophy master's from St. John's College in Annapolis and in Santa Fe. In my early days when I was trying to figure out what to do, I had the quintessential quarters in the couch moment. I didn't have any money. I was in graduate school. I was planning to get married to my wife, who is currently my wife now. We have three kids together now. But at the time, I was trying to get on a bus to go to a job interview and I didn't have enough money to get on the bus. So we literally looked through the couch to find quarters and I got just enough money to get on the bus. (laughs) So I was dead broke, but I knew I was interested in publishing for sure. With that background, I was interested in writing and I like history and I like economics and the way markets work. That's just what I gravitated towards. And I found, I was in Annapolis at the time and I found on the bulletin board at St. John's College a long time ago, a three by five card looking for writers. And it was a publishing company based in Baltimore. I applied and eventually got accepted to work there. Little did I know that the writing they wanted me to do was sales copy. And I didn't even know what that was at the time. And the company was a new company in the marketplace called Agora Publishing. And I ended up working directly with the founder, Bill Bonner, for many years, 15, over 15 years, came to be really good friends with him. He's probably a well-known character to your audience. I studied directly with him. We, I, he moved his family to Paris first, but I had soon followed after him. We lived in Paris for five years and founded what we thought was the first email financial newsletter in the industry, which was 
called The Daily Reckoning, which we publish to this day. So I cut my teeth writing about libertarian economics and history and booms and busts and how all of those kind of big picture ideas get played out in the market every day. So it's kind of a broad look at, at history and where we are in it and um, what that means for people trying to manage their own money in the markets. So that I actually say all the time, I couldn't do the work that I do without having a an English degree because it's primarily writing and I'm interested in writing, interested in the craft of it and without studying philosophy, religion, economics, that kind of stuff. Because all of those things come to play in this thing we know as the marketplace. And Agora actually means marketplace in Greek. So it was a good fit for me. But then now, actually, my 30th anniversary just passed. It's the only actual job I've, other than bartending and that kind of stuff that I've ever had. So it's been a long ride. And Bill and I wrote a couple of books together. And as we were talking uh, before getting on the show here, I this year, I have a series of third editions coming out of, actually have two of them right here, third edition of Demise of the Dollar, which is a look at the U.S. attempt to manage a fiat currency since the Bretton Woods exchange rate system was taken down in 1971. And a lot of history that goes into that, that brings us to the great inflation of 2023. And then Financial Reckoning Day, which Bill and I co-wrote in 2000. We started in 2001 as we were covering the dot-com bubble and bust. And it was the foundational principles for the Daily Reckoning. These two books are coming out in, actually, they're both out. This one just came out yesterday in its third edition. And then a third book that Bill and I wrote together was called The Empire of Debt. And it's really look at the, the history of the politics that led the United States to become the most influential political force, cultural force, economic force in the world. And we rose to the level of level of empire, like greater than any empire that's that's roamed the earth before. But we've done it all on extending debt. We have this phrase that we use all the time. We, the Romans would say, we came, we saw, we conquered. And the American version of that is, we came, we saw, we borrowed. And that can't be any more of a, a threat to people's financial situation than it is today, especially since the summer of 2020. The bond market's all messed up because the amount of deficit spending that's been going on to combat a self-inflicted wound of the pandemic and the lockdowns. And just this year alone, we had a deficit of $2 trillion for the fiscal year that ended September 29th. And it's a relatively peaceful economy. We're, we're fighting two proxy wars at the moment. But this is a peacetime economy that can't sustain itself. It has to borrow $2 trillion a year just to, to keep going. It's a mess. And that's been my work for 30 years is trying to Put the pieces together to help it be understandable to a wider audience, but also, what do you do about it? How do you live in this live in this world? I know your show is mostly listened to by expats. That's definitely one of the avenues that we've explored over the years. Bill is good friends with Doug Casey, who I'm got, I've got to know over the years, and uh, I'm just intrigued and interested in the themes that he continually finds <laughs> and his franchise. It's more than just a book, but International Man has taken on a strong meeting for your audience, I'm sure, and uh, many of the people that you talk to. 
Yep. Doug's a very good friend of mine and a man that I respect very much. And all the team over at International Man, Nick and Mona and everybody are just such fantastic people, really good, honest, ethical people and putting out yes. fantastic work. And Doug's a, he's a legend. I mean, there's no question about that at all. Now, I have a question, I guess it's kind of interesting, the timings of the third edition for your books, because I think that most people, certainly on this program, will understand that you know we believe that there is a massive reckoning coming. I mean, there is a massive crash coming, but things that I would have thought would have happened six months ago, a year ago, two years ago, it's still been just pushed out a little bit later. And it's, I just expect to wake up tomorrow and the whole world just melting down. Now we've had tons of problems with COVIDs and not really with COVID, but with government's response to COVID. And now the wars are center stage and the money printing is just out of control. But how is it that the market is still kind of afloat right now? Well, that is a really good question. And in the process of updating the books, it was almost a project of changing tenses. Like we expected there to be an onslaught of heavy or rapidly rising inflation, but it happened about a decade after we initially forecast it. We didn't account for, in the early editions of the books, zero interest rate policy for almost a decade. And we didn't account for what has become quantitative easing, QE1, 2, 3. Those are all programs put on by the Fed that you know kick the can down the road continually. And there's a whole period of time in between like 2011 and 2021 where corporate America, the banking industry worldwide, Congress itself, everybody got used to the low interest rates and started planning budgets accordingly, including the financing of the national debt. And we were burning the candle at both ends for that entire time. But it it seemed okay because uh, interest rates were so low. And there was a ton of money being pumped into the stock market. The Wall Street banks were in cahoots, essentially, with the Federal Reserve. Money was flowing in there, and then they were looked. They were chasing yields all over the place. So we saw bubbles in things like cryptocurrency, and we saw bubbles in uh, pot stocks for a while. The most recent one we've seen was in AI-related stocks. Nvidia becoming a trillion-dollar company. That money has to go somewhere, and it's only after the lockdowns and American consumers started spending away the savings that they had in 2020 and 2021 that we saw the the inflation just take off in the economy globally that we had forecast leading up. We thought it was going to happen in 2011, 2012, but it got kicked down the road for another 10 years after that. So in editing the books, I'm, I'm like, we said this will happen and I'm changing it to, and this happened. It's like changing tense to will to has happened. So you might have been early, but you weren't wrong. Yeah, right. I mean, I, that's the challenge of forecasting anyways. We could be right for 10 years and it doesn't come to fruition. Timing still matters. And that's part of my work too, is we publish newsletters and I'm, we have analysts who are looking at, on a more micro level, financial advice based on different investing strategies and or looking at different sectors and that's where the rubber meets the road. And most of them are pretty conscious of reading the market as it is, uh, even if they agree with the thesis that on a macro level, things are falling apart. 
you still have to figure out how to manage your money in the meantime. And the newsletters that we publish are targeted towards specific areas that people are interested in, like energy and precious metals. And well, we were big on treasuries for a bit <laughs> until they, they we've, we've just gone through the largest sell-off or the most aggressive sell-off in U.S. Treasury since the Treasury was, was founded. The actual T-notes were founded in 1787. So we're in uncharted territory, uh, territory, but you still have to read the market and figure out what you're going to do with your money. Mm -hmm. Well, so to go back to the original question, you've laid out the problems, and I agree with them, and I see them, and I think a lot of people are on the same page with us. But how is it that things have not, how, how we haven't had meltdown yet? Like, why did it not happen last Tuesday or something like that? Like, what is holding on? Because they, they, it just seems like by the skin of their teeth, they are just holding on. Yeah, I would just say that bad policies lead to more bad policies. And we've seen I, in one of, it's actually in a special report I wrote that's in addition to these books, was just looking at Fed policy starting in 1987. The era in the 70s and the early 80s when we had rapid inflation and then the Volcker era is pretty well documented. I wasn't looking at that period. I was looking at the Greenspan era and then what happened subsequent to that in starts in 1987 when we had the flash crash. Uh, the, the Dow lost like 507 points in one trading day, which was enormous at that time. And the, the Fed met that challenge by lowering interest rates and pumping money into the market. And that worked for a time. And then we had, we had the Mexican crisis in 92 and then an LTCM in 98 and then the dot com bus. And in each case, they used the same grab bag of tools. They met a crisis with more money and they're continually doing that. 2008, just printing money wasn't enough. So they had to drastically lower interest rates. And then they had to start buying assets in the market to support, to support Wall Street, basically. And each time the crisis rears its head, they come up with more inventive ways to kick the can down the road. But they never do address the problem that you and I are aware of, which is they're just spending too much money and they can't get their books together in Washington. And that's a that's a hallmark of fiat currency management throughout history. And in time, they all fail. All fiat regimes fail. We're right now we're just in the throes of one that happens to be a global phenomenon. It's the first time that we've had a central bank of the Fed stature that effectively is the world's central bank, even though there's challenges from Russia and and the BRICS nations, and they're trying to put together a currency that where they wouldn't have to use the dollar as the reserve currency of the world. But I think that's a far way off still. And we benefit greatly from that reserve currency status in the world. I say we Americans who are not expats generally, your audience is probably much more educated on how to get out of uh, out of the dollar and move their money around in precious metals and even cryptocurrencies as a way of not being subject to the policies that come up with each time there is a crisis. I was just, just this morning, I was going through the bond sell-off and they came up with, we had the banking crisis. It looked like it was going to be a full-blown banking crisis in March of 2023. Started Really, it started in the crypto sector with the collapse of FTX and the people who had dumped so much money into currencies, especially tech entrepreneurs and those kinds of people, 
when FTX collapsed and we're now starting to peel back the layers and see what, you know, what fraud went on there. That led a lot of people to want to take their money out of Silicon Valley Bank was the first headline bank to go under. They had put a ton of money in treasuries. And as interest rates went up, the cost of or the value of the treasuries that they owned were worth less than what they bought them because as yields go up, price goes down. And as tech entrepreneurs, startups got worried about their money, that was the bulk of the money that was sitting in Silicon Valley Bank. They started taking their money out to cover crypto losses and or just to ensure payrolls for their startups. In order to cover the withdrawals, Silicon Valley Bank had to sell treasuries. So the whole thing is wrapped up in in a speculative boom and bust. Um, It caught Silicon Valley Bank, Signature Bank, and then a couple of weeks later, First Republic all got caught in that, that cycle. And what the Fed did to avert that crisis, it only lasted in the headlines for what, from March until May. And then it moved on like, oh, that crisis is over. We've got a debt ceiling debate that is, is, has the potential of getting the treasury downgraded, which would make everything worse. So that took over the headlines, but the banking crisis never went away. What the Fed did is they stepped in and they said they'd buy all of those assets that Silicon Valley Bank, for example, had to sell at a loss. They were going to buy them and they have been buying them at face value. The bonds, both government bonds and corporate bonds are trading at lower than their face value in the market. But the Fed has stepped in and has been buying them when necessary at face value to avert other banks going under and getting people worried about their own money in the bank. And the subsequent result of that is the Fed in the fiscal year of 2023 is losing money. The Federal Reserve itself has lost over, I think it's $111 billion in the last 13 months. So they come up with different programs and they give them funny titles like BFTC or whatever. But that's why the the crisis continues to grow is they're throwing bad policies after bad policies. And each one is is designed to sort of avert the the crisis that is dominating the headline news. And it's actually entertaining as a writer to watch because you're like, oh, that's going to work well. I have this phrase that I say in my head when I look at government solutions and stuff. And and I think, oh, what could go wrong with that? And I start with what could go wrong. And I just start digging in. And you can usually find some bureaucrat in Washington who's who's a genius behind some new policy that really is meant to save their jobs and and keep the system afloat. <laughs> it's kind of a cynical way of looking at things, but but it helps answer a lot of questions. No, it makes a lot of sense. So really what I hear you saying, and, and to use your own analogy of the grab bag, I mean, they're reaching in, pulling out toys, pulling out toys, pulling out all these things, but at some point they're going to reach in and there's going to be nothing left in the bag. I mean, they can only keep doing these types of things so many times, right? It can't, it can't go on forever, can it? Well, I don't think it can go on forever, uh, but that is a big part of trying to understand history and, and what goes on. In Financial Reckoning Day, we go all the way back to the uh, Mississippi scheme in France, and we look at, that was an uh, experiment with fiat currency. John Law, who was a, a goldsmith's son, invented paper notes for the Bank of France in order to fund the various wars that Louis XIV had been in, Louis XIV. Louis XV was actually in, was the king at the time. 
But he worked with the uh, Duke d'Orléans, who was running the nation's finances, to It was a scheme where they printed banknotes for the, the Bank of France, and then they used treasury notes from the French treasury to buy those banknotes and give them value. But there was, it was a way of creating government decree for a paper currency. And there was a huge run, a huge amount of capital that went in buying these notes as it went up and it created a bubble like we've seen numerous times since then. And they themselves tried different things. At one point, this is funny because it's in history and it seems quaint, but at one point the, the jig was up and the general public was getting becoming aware that there was no value behind this paper that they were told had value. And it was starting to cause inflation, just general goods and everything were getting more expensive. So John Law and the Duke d'Orléans came up with this idea. They rounded up all these beggars on the streets of Paris, and they gave them mining helmets, shovels, picks, and those things. And they paraded them through Paris and on the streets all the way to Nantes, which at the time, Traveling that far would have taken three or four days. And so they went through the countryside marching and they were going to get on ships and go to the new world, to this island called Mississippi. And they were going to dig for gold because there were gold reserves on this island that they were going to bring back. And that would be what funded the paper. <laughs> it, the, it all kind of fell apart when those same beggars, once they got to Nantes, they left they, and they went back to their old haunting grounds in Paris. And the shopkeepers and stuff were like, didn't you bring it, bring back any gold? And it became obvious that the whole thing was a fraud. So it's interesting to look back in history, what governments have done historically, generally, like we had a, uh, we had a gold standard under the Victorian pound for 70 years and global trade flourished and all that kind of stuff. But they, 13 countries in Europe disassembled their own gold, their own connection to the British pound in 1913 because you can't fight wars on a gold standard you need fiat currency you don't know how much stuff you're going to build and blow up you don't know how much it's going to cost you don't know how long the war is going to last so you have to put the printing press in action in order to build armaments and actually fight the wars that was a big lesson of first world war and we just see that over and over again where if the powers that be, people that are making policy, if they just kick the can down the road over and over again and come up with justifications for fighting wars and sort of justifying the enormity of the state, it always ends badly. And I, I know that we're all asking the question, well, how is this one going to end badly and when? It'd be great to know when. But we're all kind of in the same boat where everyone is doing what they can to manage the system. We take cues from the, the stock market. A lot of people that we write to are trying to take what capital they have and make more through uh, trading options and investing in tech companies that have good headlines uh, pushing the stock up. That's one way of managing your money. And that's all you can really do in a system that is, you know, every time there's a crisis, there's some new program put in place that's supposed to avert the crisis. But there's no real addressing of the main problem, which is they spend more than they take in in receipts, the government does, and they make up for it by printing more money and distributing that through the financial system. So there's a you know symbiosis between government and the way the financial structure works right now. 
And it, historically, it ends badly for everyone. So the best thing that you can do as an investor is recognize that and, and plan accordingly. Well, on the note of war, I mean, I really have no idea what the U.S. is thinking. Okay, it was one thing they were at war with Iraq and Afghanistan, and then they left and we thought maybe things would go a little bit better and, you know, maybe we'd be not so aggressive. I, once again, I say we as well as, as the collective West, and then as a proxy war in Russia, and now potentially going to war with China, and then more aggressive with North Korea, and now in the Middle East, and then Iran, and now what's going to happen with Turkey? It's just like piling on, on and on and on. And I mean, these are other nuclear-powered country or nuclear armament countries. It just yeah, it seems pure well, insanity to me. Yeah, if you look at what happened in the 30s, the last time we entered into a true, like historically we call it a global war that never really ended, but World War II was an effort to defeat totalitarianism, right? like America got on board and sent our boys overseas and we fought that war for patriotic reasons. But what really precipitated that whole thing was in the 30s, uh, starting when the stock market, market crashed in 1929, we had a debt crisis then and we also had a bank failure. I, I wrote a, a report to go along with our bank analysis in March called Anatomy of a Bus, The Banks Go First, because I was reading Anatomy of a Bubble by Garrett Garrett, who was a financial journalist in in the early 30s and continued on after that. But he was really focused on what had gone wrong with with the stock market and then how it was working its way through the economy in the 30s. And he outlines how debt built up and then was filtered through the financial system, through banks. And there were no stopgap measures in place to avert bank runs. And then it just kind of made it into the popular culture that the economy was doing bad and that we needed the government to come in and, and save the day. FDR took the bull by the horns there. And that's where we get a lot of the centralization of the government that we now have. We got it in the 30s in the wake of a, a credit bust and banking crisis. And then because uh, at the time, the U.S. was the world's manufacturer, as well as a great exporter of grains and things that the world needed, our needs. And we, uh, just on the man manufacturing front, we produce 30% of the world's goods and we ship them overseas. So when our economy got into trouble, Everybody who was a net creditor to us got in trouble too because the system kind of broke down and we had trade wars because people were trying to keep prices higher. And that system of global trade fell apart and led to because people get anxious and start doing stupid things when the economy is not functioning. It led to the rise of uh, the Nazis in Germany and Mussolini and the Japanese movement in the South Pacific. So that's what happens when things start falling apart is the people who want centralized control coalesce that they make promises to address people's economic anxiety. And that gives them the power to then pass the policies that, that they expect everyone to follow. And you can see encroaching violence in civil society. Civil society itself is falling apart. It was just another mass shooting yesterday. And Lewiston, Maine, which is like as rural as any small gets. 
And something like 22 people were killed at a bowling alley. But we're we're seeing a lot more of that kind of activity as civil society reacts to an economy that's not producing the goods. And 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 we see all kinds of protests about, you know, Black Lives Matter and things like that, where if people were gainfully employed and the economy was growing and, and satisfying the needs of the people who depend on it, they wouldn't be out in the streets protesting anything. So we're seeing that decay on a societal level, but the world order that was built around the U.S. winning the Cold War and the dynamism of the tech industry kind of selling phones all over the world, that was supposed to be the end of history. If you remember, Francis Fukuyama wrote a piece at the end of the, at the break, after the wall came down in Berlin. This is the end of history because American free market capitalism is going to take over and everybody's going to embrace democracy. I mean, the, <laughs> the history since then shows that that's, if anything, that's the opposite of, what, of what's happening, especially in the last three years. My goodness. Yeah. And since the pandemic, I mean, that was the first time we ever, the government quarantined the healthy and we did it globally. What, what did they think was going to happen? I mean, we shut down the global economy and now we have to rebuild it with massive amounts of debt. Every central bank is, uh, just yesterday, the Swiss central bank, which is the oldest central bank in the world, sent a letter to parliament in Sweden saying we need the equivalent of $7 billion or the bank is insolvent. But they were doing the same thing. They were running QE programs and a ZERP for actually they started on negative interest rates before the Federal Reserve even did. So it's a systemic problem that is global. And you're starting to see, uh, you mentioned all of the different political challenges the U.S. has, not just the U.S., but the consortium that sits behind NATO. All the Western countries that are running their country on fiat currencies are now challenged by uh, just a new wave of nationalism in many different areas. This the the thing that's going on in Israel right now, uh, I'm afraid that that's going to spread to direct conflict with Iran. Contagion, for sure. For those interested in moving to another country, I highly recommend learning the local language before you arrive. After traveling for the last 23 years straight, I have seen many people fall into the expat bubble trap. This is where you move to a new country and you only talk to people from the USA or Canada and you are unable to make local friends. The best way to combat this is by having an understanding of the local language. And the best program I have ever seen for this is storylearningcourses.com. These are the programs I use to go from very crummy language skills to fluent in no time flat. The courses are fun and easy to understand and most importantly, really work. No matter where you are in your language learning abilities, go to storylearningcourses.com. That's storylearningcourses.com to learn more. So with your study of history and your study of World War One and World War II, do you see parallels or similarities that are leading us into World War III? Or would you even argue that we are in World War III right now, but it's just not been announced? Uh, I wouldn't call it World War III yet, but it definitely has all the hallmarks of okay. getting there. And one of the things that I have also noticed, and it's, it's sort of like a, just a guide to follow, is that the British pound was the reserve currency of the world during the entire, entire Victorian era leading up to World War One, And it really took two world wars and a Great Depression for the U.S. dollar to become the reserve currency of the world. 
And that was really done by decree at the Bretton Woods conference that they put together at the end of World War II to reimagine the global monetary system, knowing that all of the economies of Europe had been destroyed in the war. And the U.S. dollar became the reserve currency of the world simply because at the time, the U.S. economy was the most robust, even though it had turned into a wartime economy intended to produce munitions that then got destroyed. It was the only one that didn't have, like, we, we didn't have pitched battles on the North American continent. So we were left standing. And during the war, we accumulated 73% of the world's gold reserves. So it made sense at the time to make the dollar the reserve currency of the world and then back it by gold. And then the exchange rate system stipulated that if anybody else, France or Brazil or anybody wanted to trade their currency in for dollars, they would have to do it for dollars, not for gold directly, but for US dollars. And then the dollar itself was backed by gold or redeemable for gold. That whole system fell apart in 1971. And most of the economic dislocations we've seen since then are because the US dollar is the reserve currency of the world. And we didn't want to give our gold away. So we shut the gold window and uh, and then we just... Do you think they still have the gold? I don't know. We have, they... <laughs> When's the last time Fort Knox was audited? Yeah, that's... 50 uh, years ago, something like that? Yeah, 60 years ago? Know. And people trade gold all the time. So, you know, there's been a concerted effort to, to consider gold not money just as a commodity. And uh, the U.S. has definitely been in that camp forever, just saying the Federal Reserve doesn't consider gold as money. Yeah, well, even the IRS considers it a, a collectible. Yeah. And like uh, most of the Western central banks have the same view. Bank of England has sold off most of their gold reserves. Japan has sold off theirs. And the U.S. hasn't reported how much they actually have, but they don't consider it an important thing to publish. Kind of like when they took down M3, the broadest measure of how much money is in the system. 100%. Stop reporting it because they didn't want people to know. So anyway, the, I think the broader point is that studying even just the 20th century, it took two world wars for a new global currency to emerge after the Victorian era global trade system was destroyed. It still took a, a number of years to find an alternative that worked decently until 1971. And then everything that has happened since then just proves that we're not immune to the same forces of economic history as any other country. So where does it go from here? That's really the question is, what is going to replace the U.S. dollar? And generally, when looking forward, it's hard to pinpoint what events are going to precipitate any other crisis or, or anything. Like a couple of weeks ago, we wouldn't have been talking about Israel and Hamas at all. That kind of came out of the blue, but it comes on top of the debate about trying to finance Ukraine's defense against Russia and the, the long trade war that we've been having with China and the tension over Taiwan. Like though all those things exist, but it could be that Hamas' decision to attack Israel is like our Sarajevo moment, the moment when Archduke Ferdinand was was assassinated in Sarajevo, Sarajevo that kicked off kicked off World War One. I. I mean, what the way I can see that playing out is that the U.S. has already sent two carrier groups to the Western Mediterranean 
and they've been just sending warnings to Iran not to not to support Hezbollah or whatever, not to broaden the the war that Israel is undertaking against Hamas. It's not going to take much to kick that over into a broader war. And the U.S. has already been all over, as you have pointed out, Iraq and Afghanistan. We've been on either side of Iran for 30 years, like physically on their borders. So it would... Well, on the same scope, as I was saying before, it might be early, but not wrong. When I was living in the Middle East, I was there for nearly a decade, and I was taking a look around and went, I think war with Iran is coming. And I picked up my family, and I moved them across the world, and I moved them to Latin America, because I could see what was happening. Okay, I was four years too early, but I'd rather be four years too early than five minutes too late. Right. And I clearly can see the writing on the wall and I can see the sentiments changing and it's just getting worse and worse and worse. I want to be physically located well away from that. And I think that things will be very different in the United States this time around. I think that they have Hezbollah and Hamas like all through the US. I mean, the immigration process in the United States is just crazy. There's no idea who is in that country right now. And I think that when we enter into another World War III, and I believe we will, it's going to be a lot closer to home this time than World War I and World War II was. Yeah, and I think, too, if you look back in history, World War I, the roots of World War I were in 1870, the war between Franco, the Franco-Prussian War, the war between France and what would become Germany because of that war. They weren't even a country or a nation before the war, the Franco-Prussian War. So, like, if you read what people are writing in the turn of the century, and then there was a a financial panic in 1907, or if you read what was going on with the rise of fascism in Europe, in the U.S., we were aware of those things. So there's always the trends in place that people are aware of that lead to wars of magnitude. But what we remember when we look back is not what people were afraid of coming down the road. What we remember are the flashpoints or the catalysts that that kick things off. So the biggest one, the most notorious one, I guess, is the Japanese surprise attack on on, uh, Pearl Harbor. A surprise with quotation marks, but yes. Yeah. That that's what we know, like historically, for most people that don't pay attention to the trends or even aren't interested in financial markets or anything. That's what we know about World War II, that Japan attacked us without warning, and that justified going to war with them. And since they were already allied with Germany, then we ended up going to war with them, too. But all of those trends historically were in place, and people were well aware of them. So just as you're talking about moving away from the Middle East... This conflict with Iran has been coming since the late 60s, really, or whenever we had the Shah in place and we're trying to control the oil flow out of that country. It's scary times. I mean, legitimate. I mean, I'm still a young guy. I'm 40 years old. But I've asked people who are, I've asked Doug and and other guys that I talked to who are, who are in their 70s and 80s as in their lifetime, have they ever seen anything like this? And the answer is no. Like, I mean, it's just, this is all uncharted waters in front of us. Yeah. Well, it's interesting that that class of libertarian writers, uh, Doug and Bill Bonner is another one. And that's who I have been working with. They were were well aware of the trends that were in place 
in the 80s, the 80s and 90s, Bill actually got involved early in his own career in the National Taxpayers Union because he was aware that the, the government was overspending even in the 70s and 80s, and everyone was afraid of inflation at that time. And he, he started a nonprofit called the National Taxpayers Union. And ultimately, that group is the one that got the Taxpayers Bill of Rights passed. Uh, it was him and Jim Davidson. They grew up together in Maryland, and they founded uh, National Taxpayers Union together. And that nonprofit spurned off or sp uh, spun off a for-profit company that became Agora Publishing. And so they've been looking at this crisis from the same point of view since the late 70s. And the first publication that, that uh, Bill put out, it's kind of, we still call it the landmark uh, publication of Agora is International Living. And it, it's all about helping people take what money they have, expatriate and living off of uh, a smaller amount of capital in better jurisdictions for your money and for your taxes. So that is the very core of the business that I've been working with 30 years. Yeah, but maybe I should clarify a little bit. They've been very right about predicting a lot of the economic thing. But if we talk to, you know, a lot of the gentlemen that I work with, they've never seen anything like the government's response to COVID. They've never seen shutting down entire economies. They've never seen this type of totalitarianism in the Western society. Like it's just not existed. Like this is really new things. And it's just, it's one after another, after another. The last three years has been absolutely crazy. It's just, it's unbelievable. Yeah, and that's that's kind of where I was getting is that those trends were all in place, but they, they seemed reasonable and relatively civilized if we look back 30 years. But the things that the government finds itself self-empowered to do, I mean, they're trampling all over civil rights, for example, just because they are uh, are aware of the crisis and they grab hold of the authority to do something about it. I, the whole thing with the pandemic lockdowns was just a, it was just a charade from day one. I remember the day that Maryland shut down it, its restaurants and bars because Chicago had done it like a week before that. And I was like, there's no way that's going to happen. I still didn't believe it at that time. I was, I was, I don't know what world I was living in, but I guess we're all just shocked that, that they would take it to that level and then it would go global at the same time. So, yeah, I guess I'm agreeing with you that all of these trends have been in place and we've been cataloging them and trying to understand them and also try to forecast what we think is going to come next for many years. But the magnitude of the crisis keeps growing and the magnitude of the response grows with it. So we keep getting a more, a more centralized and authoritarian government, which is, you know, it's anathema to the idea of the Constitution in the first place. So. Yeah, I don't know where this goes, but it doesn't doesn't end well. Well, I agree with that sentiment. Absolutely. Now, to circle back on reserve currencies, what's your opinion on CBDCs? Besides, obviously, they're terrible. But do you think that they're going to succeed with these? Do you think that will be the new reserve currencies? Do you see any hope coming down the line with a gold-backed currency or something a little bit more fiscally responsible? What's your opinion? Well, I think that the operative word there or phrase would be fiscally responsible. I don't think they're really interested in fiscally responsible. They're more interested in, in control of the currency itself. I will say with central bank digital currencies, 
I think there is a benefit to it. And this sometimes gets overlooked because of privacy concerns and also just the idea that it would, it would be easier for the government to track your spending and <laughs> exert authoritarian measures on your private life, your private finances in a way that we've never seen before. It gives them the capacity to do that. But since even before CBDCs were a regular topic for people to discuss, I was looking at cryptocurrencies. We've been covering Bitcoin for as long as anyone. We started uh, covering in 2009 when Bitcoin was under a buck. And the whole time I've been thinking that the innovation behind it, blockchain and the ability to encrypt and make transactions private is the one benefit that crypto brings to the table. And the analogy I use is when the dot-com bubble was rising, there was all these companies that were fraudulently claiming that they were tech companies and just taking money out of the stock market and that whole thing collapsed. But at the end, we were left with email and websites and an internet that most people could use. And as time has gone by, it became the, the architecture of the economy that we all make our livings on. I think the same thing is true of blockchain. It makes banking more efficient, which can cut out middlemen and drop fees. There are a lot of good things that could come from it. The danger is when it gets put into the hands of people who aren't really interested. They're interested in the efficiency, but using it for nefarious means, what we would consider nefarious means. And then they cloak it in terminology that makes it sound like they're doing everyone a favor by making it more efficient or whatever. But what, what they're really interested in is controlling the banking system. I actually just wrote about that in a special report that I have out on the internet right now called The Great American Shell Game. They're telling you in one, on one hand that this is all good. They're going to avert the crisis. The banking system is going to be more efficient and we're going to, we're going to be able to control the economy more efficiently. On the other hand, they are controlling the economy more efficiently, efficiently, and it gives them another tool to centralize power in the Federal Reserve, in the banking system, and ultimately in the government, regardless of who's in Congress or in the White House. So that's the scary part is that it's the CBDCs are in the wrong hands. I think the efficiency that it brings to the banking system is a good thing, should bring costs down over time. But in the wrong hands, it's it's frightening because they can they can lock you out of your own accounts if they want to. And do you think that they're going to succeed with rolling out these CBDCs, not just in the United States, but in other countries? Do you think that we might get a CBDC as a reserve currency and it won't be the U.S. dollar anymore? Yeah, there there are a couple of test cases that are operating right now. Off the top of my head, I can't recount them because I haven't been covering it for a little bit. There's Nigeria and they failed miserably. It was like a 99. Yeah, El Salvador. There's a bunch of different countries. I mean, I've sat in on meetings with central bankers. I was just in Georgia last month and we had a central banker, the head of the Central Bank of Georgia at a conference that I was speaking at and asked all his questions. And he was so happy about the whole thing. He was so bullish on it. He had no idea who he was talking to. It was a giant group of 100 libertarians and was just like, this is the greatest thing ever. And people were like, they were livid. They were like foaming at the mouth. They were, yeah. <laughs> it was it, it was very bizarre situation to watch. 
Yeah, and El Salvador did an experiment too that that backfired on them because they had converted a bunch of money into Bitcoin itself, and then Bitcoin fell apart, and it had the exact opposite impact on the economy that they were expecting. But to me, that's a hallmark of new uh, new technology or new innovation going into the market. Anyway, there's always success stories, and there's always like fantastic failures anytime a, a new innovation is brought in. So you can expect that kind of thing. Whether we they can uh, efficient or effectively institute a CBDC in the Federal Reserve, they have Fed Now, which is the efficiency component of the Federal Reserve banking system. So that is kind of like the beta test, in my view, of CBDCs at the Fed level. If they'll ever get to a digital currency, I don't know, because there's a lot of people in the country still, especially with uh, immigration the way it is, that don't use they don't have phones or anything. They don't use technology to sustain their own livings. So if you, the only way to have a CBDC is to force everyone to use technology and you'd have to train them. There's something like 150 million people that that are locked out of that system before it, it it's even, even attempted. So I think that that's why it's actually taken a lot longer. I'm sure if they could figure out a way to make everyone have a cell phone and put their banking information on it, like by rule or decree or some kind of legislation. They did it with contact tracing apps for COVID. So Yeah. Well, I also look at COVID as a, a test case for how much they can get away with authoritatively. And that's the other thing. So one is, can they physically do it? There's so many people that would be locked out of the system. They would just be... They'd have to pass, which is actually one of their goals, pass the bare minimum that people can make per year and then issue issue it to them, almost like bribing them to use the system, which I wouldn't put it past them because I can see them doing that. Well, I mean, crypto does it with airdrops. So I, I think it'll be the same thing with UBI. I mean, it's basically an airdrop of FedCoin. Yeah, well, it could be, you know, that could be what we're going to see. The other thing is I do think there's plenty of people like you, like me, a lot of, you know, there's a small number of people in Congress right now who don't believe that that's what the role of government should be in the first place. I do think that there's an uprising. At least people are more aware of it. They're not just taking the, especially after COVID, they're not taking the Fed's word at face value anymore, just because it could be more efficient and could help you with your uh, help manage the currency, that doesn't mean it's a good idea. And I think there's a lot of people that would just not use it. Well, to parrot the words from my very good friend, Paul Rosenberg, I remember he was writing and speaking about calling a, a call to action, or I guess it was a call to inaction for anybody who works in the tech sector and IT, do not participate in developing these CBDCs. Even if they are offering you massive salaries and fat bonuses and stuff like that, don't participate. I mean, we need to be actively as a society blocking these because they're, the idea is absolutely disgusting. Now, to your points of efficiency, we have Bitcoin, we have Solana, we have 21,000 different projects. I don't think this needs to be in the hands of central bankers or government or CIA or whoever is behind all of this. Yeah, I don't think it needs to be in their hands, but they do. Yeah, sure. I get <laughs> That's that. The I get that. But I don't know. I some t some ways I feel like I just fall back on faith, and and we historically we came to a point in 1776 where we're like we're not gonna we're not gonna pay England taxes anymore. Like there was an uprising of enough people in society 
to say no, that we ended up founding a whole new country. And the bulwark of the Constitution still allows for that. You know, I don't know how closely we follow it anymore, but I just feel like there's a strain of our DNA that is that won't accept CBDC. I, I don't know. That's not factually based on research or anything like that. But I just feel, I guess I have confidence in, in people's sense of independence and belief in their own intelligence and skill set to not have to rely on the centralized system. Very well said. Addison, I love the conversation. Thank you very much. If my listeners want to get a hold of you, if they want to find out more about your work, if they want to pick up your books, where can we send them? The best place to go is to the wigginsessions.com. My last name does not have an S on it. It's Wigan, W-I-G-G-I-N, sessions, like as in a jazz session.com. And we made it really easy. If you just want to give your email to start receiving my daily missive and or I, uh, the way I run the show is I have people, I would have you on, for example, and I have people like Doug Casey or or Bill, I have people on the show that have interesting ideas on, that I want to share to a wider audience. And then I write about those people in, in a daily basis and try to plug it into, plug the ideas into the financial markets and the economy as we see it evolving over time. So I pull that together in a daily email. And you can get that at jointhesessions.com. Uh, it's just a page where you give us your email and then we start, we start receiving it the next day. So it's wiggins.com and jointhesessions.com. Those are the two choices. The books are there. I've got a number of videos that I've made there. And also you can find The Great American Shell Game, which I just released 10 days ago. And that's really uh, rubber meets the road, how these big ideas of the way the economy is unfolding matches your investment portfolio and the way you should be thinking about putting your money together in the face of what could be the most epic crisis we've seen historically. Amazing. Addison, I love it. Thank you so much. And I will talk to you soon. Great. Thanks, Mikael. Super exciting news. We just released our first in a series of expat guidebooks. These are in-depth country guides on how to move to another country. And the first one released is Expat's Guide on Moving to Mexico. It took us over two years to compile all the research and write this book on Mexico. And coming in at 475 pages, you can really see how much work has gone into this. It's a complete guide on everything you need to know if you want to move to Mexico, including where to live, immigration, taxes, lifestyle, buying property, how to get a driver's license, and a million other things you would never think you need the answers to. You can find the book directly on Amazon by searching for Expat's Guide on Moving to Mexico or go to expatguidebooks.com, which will take you to our online shop where you will find the book. Go to expatguidebooks.com. That's expatguidebooks.com. This episode may be over, but your journey to greatness continues by visiting our webpage and signing up for our newsletter. For convenient access to new episodes, show notes, and other crucial resources, visit expatmoneyshow.com. We look forward to you joining us on the next episode of the Expat Money Show. Safe travels. I have managed to secure exclusive rights to a block of villas in one of the hottest up-and-coming regions in my current home country, Panama. Join me Saturday, May 4th at 10 a.m. Central, 11 a.m. Eastern Time for our special presentation called Investors Workshop, capitalizing on the globally recognized resort brand 
coming to Panama. We will discuss how the tourism landscape in this region will change rapidly upon the public announcement of this project and how I have secured the rights for my clients to capitalize on this opportunity before anyone else. Thanks to my connections in the region, I have negotiated pricing that front runs everyone else. Think early, early bird pricing. From gourmet restaurants to vibrant clubs, poolside activities, and even live bands, this resort is going to pump some serious life into the region. But this isn't what excites me or what should excite you either. The exciting part is that these world-class amenities and top brand will attract tens of thousands of tourists. Tourists who will fork over top dollar to stay at our investment properties. Register free at expatmoney.com forward slash webinars. That's expatmoney.com forward slash webinars to register for this free real estate workshop. See you on May 4th at 10 a.m. Central Time. That's 11 a.m. Eastern Time. Go to expatmoney.com forward slash webinar.